And Lord, we pray as we open up your word this morning that indeed we will look for that beatific vision, that picture of you of gorgeous beauty and righteousness, that the beauty of the Lord might truly be with us all of our days, that your favor would rest upon us. Lord, we are creatures who long to go our own sinful way, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God we truly love. But this morning we pray, take our hearts, seal them, seal them for thy courts above. Open your word that we might behold wondrous things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, she almost made it. That's what the newspaper said about Sarah Noss. This was way back in 1999, and she was noted by the Guinness Book of Records as being the oldest living human being, 119 years old. She was born in 1880, and now here she was almost into the 21st century, and she died less than 48 hours before the year 2000. She almost made it. Now, it would have been an, ama it was an amazing feat that she was alive at that point, and it would only be, you know, just another tick of the clock if she made it another day or two, but it would have been significant because then it could have been said she lived through the entire 20th century. Now, if you remember back at that time, it was also significant because everyone was talking about Y2K. Remember that? Yeah, some of you might have not even been born then, and most of you were, but Y2K, the fear that existed in our society was, was unbelievable and very unreasonable. But it hit almost every sector. I remember they said planes were going to fall from the sky. Banks were going to collapse. You know, all power would just uh, suddenly be taken off from, uh, from our nation, and everyone was afraid. Of course, you'd go into stores, and you'd see these Time clocks, the countdown clocks, remember those? Only so many hours left before Y2K, buy this generator, you know. <laughs> Only so many hours left, get your food ready because there's not going to be any power, better get your water, and people were believing that stuff, and it was amazing. I didn't book a flight that night, but uh, I didn't really believe much was going to happen, but I did stay up, and I just wanted to see, you know, see if the lights would flicker or some kind of tragedy, nothing. But I remember watching those time clocks thinking, my life is ticking away. It's not just a tick down to the year 2000. It's like, boom, boom, boom. There goes some more life, some more life, some more life. That was depressing. That's why I don't have one of those clocks in my home. Wake up every day and, you know, another day lost or whatever it might be. And yet it's biblical for us to count our days. Are you aware of that? The oldest psalm in the Bible says, learn to count your days. What does that mean? Well, let's open the scriptures to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. And it is the oldest psalm because it's from the pen of Moses. And I'm reminding many of you, you already know this, but perhaps some of you don't, that the very first introductory line is part of the Hebrew text. 
So what we're talking about here is not just some scribe saying, I think this might have come from Moses. Or someone writing an introductory statement that will give you a feel for the flow of the psalm. That's not what's happening. This is the actual word of God that says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So that makes Psalm 90 the oldest of all psalms. When you read the psalm, there's nothing in it that pinpoints the exact time in the life of Moses when he wrote it. But I think the best guess has to be the wilderness wandering period. And maybe you could go back to Numbers chapter 14, uh, the debacle at Kadesh Barnea, when the spies went out to examine the land. Remember that? And the 12 spies came back and 10 had a bad report. And so Israel, instead of going into the land, ended up wandering around the land for 40 years. And the judgment of God came upon the Hebrew people. And there's some of that mentioned in this particular psalm. So I think it's Moses reflecting on that horrible situation when the people of God rejected the Lord and disobeyed his word and removed faith and trust from him and experienced a really hard life. In light of all of that, maybe Moses is near the end of his life as he's writing some of these things. We don't know, but this is a great psalm because it is a psalm that is a prayer and it talks about God and it talks about man and it talks about time. So appropriate as we, as we come to the end of this year, 2014. I also want to remind you that this psalm is poetry. We have several books in the Bible that are considered to be books of poetry, like Job, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, sometimes Lamentations is thought of as well. And other sections of Scripture in different books are written in a poetic fashion. And that's significant because poetry is a different style than prose. Scientific writing is different than someone writing a casual novel. And you have to understand the style of writing to help understand the message that is being given. So we know poetry is condensed writing, right? It's condensed in the fact that there's brevity of words. Uh, there is the idea of more power per word than in prose writing. Someone said it's higher voltage. <laughs> so as you're reading poetry, you can get a lot more out of uh, a shorter sentence or a paragraph or whatever it might be. Very intense. Now, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes people will give me poetry and say, this, this is really great stuff, read it, and I'll read it, and I'll have no idea what they're saying. Has that ever happened to you? I, I still don't understand Milton's Paradise Lost unless someone tells me. Oh, I get a few things, but he loses me half the time. And sometimes when we're studying the scripture, especially in these poetic sessions, uh, sections, we get lost. Because poetry uses vivid image and metaphor to make a particular point. But the metaphor is not to be understood literally. Get what I'm saying? So when you read the book of Psalms, understand that. And that will help you even in a particular psalm like this. So here's the prayer of Moses written in a poetic way 
designed to be a song and a a portion of Scripture that helps us evaluate where we are. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a great section of Scripture. Let me stop right there and say, I think this psalm has kind of three movements to it. And here's the first. It's talking about God and time and the fact that God is eternal. God is over time. He's over it. He's not subject to it. He's Lord above it. So think of those two verses. God is over time. Another translation, the English version, has this of verse 2. Before you created the world, you were eternally God, and you will be God forever. So God is over time which is far different from us. Time has no claim upon God. Time has no limits upon the limitless, infinite, almighty. Think of time in this sense. If you were to put sheets, uh, uh, take a, a ream of paper, some 500 sheets, and put them next to one another, end to end, And then at the end of each piece of paper, put an arrow indicating that there is more, there is infinity. And let that be eternity. And then write all of time with just a little line on one sheet of paper. Which, by the way, you really can't do in proper proportion because if it were proper proportion to eternity, it'd be so small you couldn't see it. But let's say you've got an inch of two or three, a line of two or three inches. That's all of time. And then write on every piece of paper, God, God, God. Every piece, God, God. He's over time. He's before it. He's after it. A.W. Tozer described it this way. From vanishing point to vanishing point. He said, we human beings, with our mind, we look back in time to the dim past where it vanishes and we can see it no more. And God is before time. Or we look ahead in the future and we we go until thought and imagination uh, are exhausted and God is beyond time there. At either point, God is unaffected and God is before and after and over and under. He's he's the eternal God. And that's why verse 1 says, if you make him your dwelling place, you are really safe. Oh God, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, Israel could say. You've been our home. This is the same Hebrew word that is often translated refuge. In fact, you'll see it in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. There's beautiful poetry. God doesn't have arms, but the Bible says underneath us are his everlasting arms. That's the kind of hug you want. (laughs) The eternal everlasting hug of God. That's the kind of support you want. You want someone who's not affected by time. Someone who is eternal. The problem with verse 1 is I'm not sure whether he's saying 
you have been our dwelling place and continue to be, or whether Moses is regretting the fact that Israel used to find refuge in God, but no more. You have been our dwelling place, but unfortunately today, you are not. We're going to get into a section of scripture that might indicate that that is the case with Israel. God is eternal. God is everlasting. And let that so encourage your heart because you can hide in him and not be affected by time. You can find safety in him and stability in him and hope in the eternal dwelling refuge protection of Almighty God. Now, secondly, Moses goes right away to this idea of comparison, which is a normal part of Hebrew history. Sometimes it's in the same sentence, or Hebrew poetry. Sometimes it's the first sentence being contrasted with the second one. But now it's these, these paragraphs, these stanzas. And, and the second movement in this psalm is simply looking at man's finiteness, his mortality. And man has to say, I'm under time. I'm not over it. I'm not before it. I'm not after it. I'm subject to it. I'm a victim of it. I'm controlled and dominated by it. Man is finite and full of failure. God is eternal. And he is full of purity and power and, and righteousness. And on we go through the attributes of God. No other psalm depicts man's Horrible, dismal state. No psalm is so graphic in describing man as being temporary. Listen to it, verse 3. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. That's a quotation from Genesis 3. Remember when God created man, he created him out of the dust of the ground and said, You were created from dust, and to dust you will return. The time of death and decay will come. It's appointed and a man wants to die. It's an appointment you cannot miss. Now, I've never seen this happen. I've seen it in movies, but I've never experienced it in real life, and I've done a bunch of funerals. But they used to lower the coffin in the sight of the family into the hole, and then all the family would pick up a handful of dirt and throw it in the coffin. You ever seen that? Maybe some of you have actually done that. I've heard of families requiring that, but the funeral homes, they're a bit shy about doing that. We, we don't want to see the, the body of our loved one go into the ground. And so we know there's a vault there, but many times that's covered up, so you can't see that either. And you leave, and then they bury the person. But it used to be you would throw the dirt on there, and that was a reminder. We're all made of dust, and we're all going back to it. Here's our destiny as a human being. I'm not referring to the soul now, but the body goes back to the dust. However, this is a very interesting Hebrew word. It's only used here, and it means to be pulverized into dust. It means something substantial existed until, boom, God brought judgment. And now they return to dust. And with reference to the Israelites who were disobedient, that's exactly what happened. Every one of that generation was going to die in the wilderness and never see the Holy Land. The point is, we're temporary. Verse 4, same point, we're temporary. For a thousand years, our thousand years, in your sight, it's like a day. 
which is still poetry. I have people calculating, you know, this thing. Well, a thousand years is a day, and so, um, uh, you know, seven days in a week, and so uh, the universe is going to last for 7,000 years, and we've already had four. This is poetry. <laughs> the point is, time has no effect on God. It does have a great effect on us. And for us, or for God, it's like a watch in the night. Here's a shorter period of time, from 1,000 years to three or four hours. There are two different ways to calculate time, the Roman way and the Jewish way. The Jews had three watches during the night of four hours each. The Romans had four watches of three hours each. It doesn't make any difference which one this is, probably Jewish, three or four hours. So he's arguing, you know, from the fact that we are going to be pulverized back into dust someday and time for us is fleeting so quickly and it passes like a watch in the night. He goes on and says in verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening, especially in the arid climate of Canaan, it's dry and withered. This is poetry. Now, I understand that there are some properties with grass that when it decays, it's going to germinate and other grass will grow. But this is, the point is temporary here. It says it. It grows in the morning. It withers by night. And that's the point that's being made. Like in Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, what? Stands forever. And he's, he's piling metaphor upon metaphor. Other metaphors in the scripture, like man is temporary. He's like a vapor that appears for a little while. And then is gone, like the morning fog. Or you're like a fleeting bird that flies across the sky. Or you're like the shadow that is there until the sun moves or a cloud enter ends enters and is gone, or water poured upon the ground, which is quickly absorbed. That's how brief you are. So as eternal as God is, you and I are opposite. We are endangered species, and we won't be here very long. How come some of us live like we're going to be here forever? And never give thought to eternity. Never give thought to the fact that our life is short. Samuel Rutherford said in his wonderful poem, the hymn we sing, the sands of time are sinking. One stanza says, time like an ever rolling stream bears all its sons away. The Living Bible translates verse 5 like this. We glide along the tide of time as swiftly as a racing river and vanish as quickly as a dream. Now, some of you don't get this. I know you don't. You're too young. And when we talk about death and we talk about the brevity of life, you're still saying, I can't wait till I get this age. I can't wait. I can't wait. You've got all this ahead of you. But you get into your 50s, your 60s, and beyond, and you're saying, man, I understand what's happening here. I feel like I'm on that time, that river that is racing, and I can't believe how much time is gone. 
We had all of our kids over and all five of the, of the grandboys over, and so we decided one great activity would be to watch home movies from the past, the things that are boring to everyone except your own family. And my grandsons had never seen me with hair that wasn't white. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at something, I think it was the year 2000, and they said, who's that? And they said, well, that's, that's Papa. That's my name. That's Papa. No, it's not. He's young, they said. <laughs> so you laugh, you know, kind of, ha-ha. And, uh, <laughs> and then it hits you, you know. Wow. That was 14 years ago. And time has, a lot of water's gone under the bridge, we say. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, has carried me downstream. And my own grandsons don't recognize me. And, and I say, wow, time is flying. That's what the scripture says here, verse 10. We quickly pass, we fly away. We're, there's a sense of being so temporal. Now look at verse 7. And think of the Israelites Disobeying God. Moses says, we're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in light of your presence. By the way, we come to the end of the year and we want to evaluate uh, what's happened in the past. And we look back in the previous year and with many of us, we're so wired that we see our sin more than we see our success. Understand what I'm saying? We saw our failures and missed opportunities instead of some of the bright spots of the past year. It's because in the light of his presence, we're examining ourselves and we're coming up short. So verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath and we finish our years with a moan. <laughs> Isn't that graphic? Now I know it's talking about the end of life here, but sometimes you and I come to the end of a year and we finish our year with a, oh man. If I finish, if I pass uh, the finish line, if I break the tape, I'm just going to barely get over and collapse on the other side. This has been a horrible year. After the first service, one lady passed. I, I went out and was shaking hands, and one lady was walking out, and she looked up at me, and she, she was just crying because she lost her husband this year. Said it's still hard. And if you've not lost someone like that, you don't know what it's like. And you pass this year with a moan and you're thankful that you can put a period and hopefully a new beginning. We're not to pass our years, though, with a moan. There's a, there's a better way to live. Here's someone who's not walking with the Lord, the Israelites. And they've got a lot of reason to grieve. Verse 10, the length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have some strength. <laughs> I've had people say to me, the Bible's filled with errors. It is, really? Share one with me. And they'll point to this verse. Many people live more than 80 years. <laughs> and, and I want to say, I've never said this to anyone, but I want to say it. Are you that stupid? <laughs> Don't you understand this is poetry? This is a, a scientific analysis on the age and longevity of human beings. By the way, Moses, who wrote this psalm, lived to be 120 years. 
The point he's trying to make is, and, 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 and even in our own society in America, years ago the average longevity wasn't 60, 70 years. People were dying at the age of 30 and 40. That was the average lifespan. And in the future, if God tarries, people may live into their hundreds on a more uh, regular basis. That's not the point. The point is, your life is coming to an end, and it's short. I'm not trying to be a killjoy here, but this is true. If by reason of strength you might be above average, another 10 years, so... Even that life, their lifespan, middle of verse 10, is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and fly away. Difficult to interpret the Hebrew here. It probably means something like this. Yet their lifespan, or what they prize in life, is surrounded by trouble and sorrow, and even the good times quickly pass, and life is soon gone. Who knows the power of your anger, verse 11, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. But now here's a bit of a change. And this is the famous verse of Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days aright that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Now here's the first injection of hope. Here's the, the first idea that, that maybe I can change this idea of a quickly passing life where days are nothing but a moan and they're under your wrath and the final thing that Mo Moses says about time is that God can bless it. That there's hope if you learn to number your days. Isn't it interesting? Americans count years. The Bible says count days. What's the difference? In a period of time, if I'm just evaluating years, I can ruin a whole lot of days and still feel pretty good about myself. But if I'm evaluating just a day, boy, there's not much time to waste. And, and I don't think you have to write a journal. There's nothing in the Bible that says write a journal, but there is something about evaluating your life, how you're spending it, what kind of impact you're having. And if you wrote a journal, even just one entry a week, to look back at the days of the week and see how they were invested and see what kind of returns they're bringing for the kingdom's sake. That's what it means, teach us to number our days. It means that you don't have many of them. And none of us know how many we have. I numbered my days this morning. It came out to 22,000, almost 500. <laughs> How many more do I have? There's no guarantee, right? So what, what I've got to do is invest this day. How can I invest this day with hope and optimism that at the end I won't be filled with regret? Well, the Lord gives us some clues here. Moses prays, verse 13, Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning, probably the dawn of life, with your unfailing love, so that we might sing for joy and be glad all of our days. What a contrast. Verse 9, we finish our years with a moan. Verse 14, we're glad all of our days. Which one do you want? 
It depends on how you invest every day. Satisfy us with your unfailing love. Give us joy and gladness. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. It's almost as though Moses is saying, balance the scales, Lord. I've had a lot of problems. Please give me a lot of good days to balance out the bad ones. Lord, verse 16, may your deeds be shown to your servants. Lord, I want to see you at work. Here's my prayer for South Church. Lord, I want to see you work. Show me your deeds. God, work at South like you've never worked before. Show your splendor to our children. May this be a place where we experience God and see God transform lives. And Lord, verse 17, may the favor or beauty, your favor and beauty rest upon us. Isn't that a good prayer? Lord, may your favor rest upon us in 2015. Establish the work of our hands. And it's repeated for emphasis. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In other words, do something so significant, something so in tune with the character of God that he can bless it. Not the deeds that would incur his wrath, not the secret sins that are going to be exposed in his presence, but something he's pleased with that he can bless. Establish the work of our hands collectively as a church. So verse 12 says, teach us to number our days aright. Help us to understand that our days are fleeting. Let us have a right view on life and let us invest them with wisdom so that we might gain a heart of wisdom, so that we might apply every day in a wise way to accomplishing your will. How do I do that? Verse 13, compassion. Verse 14, unfailing love. Verse 14, joy and gladness. Verse 16, let us see your splendor and your work and your beauty. Verse 17, let us gaze on these things and the work we do. May it be so in tune with you that you will establish it and it will have impact on future generations. Count your days. Teach us to count our days aright. I'm told that in some cemeteries, because of the culture and the society, on the gravestone they would put the person's name, date of birth, date of death, and then underneath it they lived so many years, so many months, and so many days. Have you ever seen that? I mean, there are some cultures where every gravestone has that. So many years, so many months, and so many days. Wow. I don't know how many more days I have, but I want every day to count for Christ. I want to invest today for Jesus in a way that would please him. In a way that I can pray, Lord, establish the work of my hands and let me see your beauty and let me see your splendor and let me see you work and your compassion and your loving kindness. That's what I want my days filled with because I don't have many and I've got to make every day count. I was in a small town in Ohio and I saw this sign and I just had to pick it up and now it sits on my work desk at home. 
And it simply says this, don't simply count your days. Make your days count. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a rich psalm, and we've just skimmed the surface. But it tells us the place we need to dwell is with the God who is above time, outside of time, over time, and not affected by time. Let our dwelling place, our place of refuge, be in the eternal God. And then, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to realize our time is short and every day must be used to the fullest. We must rely upon your compassion and your loving kindness. And, Lord, we must look for your beauty and your work and your splendor. We must pray for your forgiveness and ask that you will establish the labor of our hands so that your kingdom might be built and your son glorified. That's what we pray at the end of 2014. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.